Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I really tried hard, very hard, not to talk about this text on Sunday. Um, uh, I have apparently had plenty to say on Sunday regardless. So um, uh, this was one that was really hard because there's so much here in Genesis 22 uh, it's really kind of funny, actually, when you look in your Bible, <clears throat> the headings for the chapters and the different parts of the chapters have these little uh, lines there kind of telling you what that little part is for. And at the top of, verse, at the top of chapter 22, uh, it'll, it might say something like the sacrifice of Isaac. That's not quite right. Uh, sac- the, the, the sacrifice was not of Isaac, it was of the ram. Really, this is the near sacrifice of Isaac. But still, let's play along a little bit with Abraham here in this story and picture ourselves in that time and place. Um, Imagine you are a man who has been immensely blessed by God, you've had your ups and downs your run-ins with kings, uh, things you haven't done that really should not have been done, right? I mean, um, peddling your wife off as your sister so that no one will bother you or kill you or something like that, right? Abraham did not always make the right decision on things, but God blessed him. He made the right, well, made the right call, I guess, in not rejecting God when he called him out of the land of his fathers to go into a land that he did not know that would eventually be given to his his children uh, for all time. And he was given this promise that he would have a son. And we know a little bit about that, about how he wasn't quite sure how this would happen that his wife gave him her servant, and then he had a son through her. And, you know, you have all these problems with it, with Abraham. But what we need to hold on to with him is that he is the father of the faith and the faithful. That when God told him the promise that he would be the father of, uh, he would be the father of many nations, that his 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 descendants would would be more than the sand on the beach and the stars in the sky, that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that whoever believes as he believes has him as a father in, in the faith. Because for us, all we have is God's promise. And whether or not He will come through on that. So imagine that you're this man who has lived a blessed life. And in your old age, after waiting for years for God to come through on his promise, finally he does and he gives you your son. And it's your only son. And everything is just fine. Everything looks good. God seems like a friend. And your son grows up, and about this time, Isaac is probably in his 20s, like 20 to 25, something like that. 
And they're just about ready to get him married off. And they might see his seed carry on, right? His children. And they would be blessed in seeing their grandchildren. Maybe. This is all just the hopes that they have because God has been so good to them and why won't he be good still until God comes and he tests Abraham and he says to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of, uh, and go to the land of, of, excuse me, go to the land of, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Imagine having all your hopes and your dreams seemingly come to a crashing halt. That this God, who has given you more than you could ever dream of, is now about to take it all away. And for what? You don't know. You can't be sure. There is something to be said here that when it says God tested Abraham, that is actually the same word for tempt. Now, when I say that, you might go immediately to uh, James uh, 1.13, God tempts no one, right? But if you look at the Greek there, you see that in the fullness of James 1.13, that you see that God does not tempt to, to, to do what is evil, he does tempt in a testing way as a father. Uh, Luther says that God is not a tempter. Of evil. That is, he does not test so that we may fear and hate him like a tyrant, but to the end that he may exercise um, and stir up faith and love and stir up faith and love. In us, excuse me. Satan, however, tempts for evil to draw you away from God and to make you distrust and blaspheme him. So in this sense, God is tempting Abraham. He is testing him. He is holding his feet to the fire. After everything else, he, for whatever reason, seems to want to see what Abraham will do, whether he will trust in God or not. So we see here that Abraham is in such turmoil. There's no indication that he tells his wife what's going on. There's no indication that he tells this to anybody, lest he seem mad, you know, crazy, or in the chance that someone might stop him. But he knows God's voice. He's heard it before, and he knows that this is from him. So he trusts. And there's a lot of these implications in our text that you see that in all indications that he does not tell anyone what is going on and he doesn't tell anyone to do anything to prepare. He does it all himself. He's so preoccupied with what must be done according to God's command that he cuts the wood for himself and then he packs up himself and he takes two young men he saddles his donkey, and he takes his son Isaac. And they take three days to get where they're going. 
If this was maybe a couple hours journey, that would be one thing to say, well, it's not that hard to get to the end and find out what God's going to do. But with three days of getting up and walking and going to bed and getting up and walking and so on and so forth, he must be in agony, knowing what must be done. And all the while you have to wonder to yourself, what is he thinking? What is going on through Abraham's mind? Surely this is a temptation. But it is a temptation to see if he will stay faithful. God made him a promise. Through your seed will be many nations. They will be blessed because of you and your seed. And so here is his seed. Here is his son. And what he's going to do seems contrary to reason. It seems contrary to our logic that God would ever ask us to do something so horrible. And yet he goes, not blindly necessarily, but knowing. He's holding on to the one thing that he does see, and that is God's word, a promise. He tells himself, and we have to imply this a little bit, but we do know from Hebrews what he was thinking, that surely even though I would sacrifice my son, even though I would burn him up to a crisp and ashes, God will bring forth many nations from the ashes. God will bring forth his promise. I don't know how, but he doesn't lie. So I will trust him. And so he goes. And this one thought, no doubt, is just harboring in his mind. And he holds on to this, and he goes with his son. And when they get to the spot, he tells the two servants to stay behind, lest they stop him or think he's crazy, right? And they, he takes the wood, and he places it on his son. And he takes in his hand the fire and the knife. And then his son says to him, My father... Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Can you imagine being a father and hearing your child, whom you're about to go sacrifice for God, asking you, Dad, what's going on? What are we doing? Why didn't we bring a lamb? Where is the sacrifice? And so Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they go together. And the drama here is just palpable. You can imagine him binding his son, who is strong enough to resist, right? Because Abraham is an old man at this point in time. But Isaac in his 20s can easily just run away or fight his father, push him down, say, Dad, this is not what's going on. We're leaving right now. But he honors him. He allows his father to bind him. And then right as his father is about to take the knife and slaughter him, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And Abraham looked and saw that God had indeed given a sacrifice, that a ram was caught by his horns, and he takes him and he offers it up instead of his son. So then on that place, he named it the Lord, um, he named it, um, he named it the Lord will provide. Now, what do we mean by all of this? What can we learn from all of this? Do we think from this that God is just a careless God who plays tricks and games, uh, who plays games with his people, who sees if they're going to do the right thing when he gives them a hard situation to be in? Does he do this for his sick pleasure? Does he love to see a father nearly sacrifice his son just to get a, a quick laugh? No. God does all these things for the good of Abraham and for the good of us so that we would see what his will is. Because all throughout this, there is a great example by our Father in, by our Father in the faith to trust in God when, when he seems to be going against his word. When things are going contrary to what we have been promised, what do we have to hold on to but his promise? When he has said that I will not leave you nor forsake you, and yet it feels like we are alone all the time, what else do we have to hold on to but that word of promise? To know that our feeling is not what should be driving us, but our trust in his word should. It should guide us. His word is truth. That in this, we can see that through trial and temptation, God's promises are sure. God's promises are trustworthy. That when Abraham is told by God to go and do this thing, he doesn't deliberate. He doesn't hash it out. He doesn't go to other people and say, well, uh, you know, God told me to do this, but I'm just not quite sure. No, he goes, and he gets it done, and is faithful. And in this way, we can learn to have bold confidence in God's word, to trust in him, in the power it supplies to us, to be eager to do his will as was done, um, um, excuse me, to do his will as, as it was done, um, excuse me, as it was done by Abraham, that we can read the Psalms for courage and for strength, like Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of, um, will abide in the shadow of, of, excuse me, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of, of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. 
You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the, the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to, 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 to befall you. No plague come near your tent. That when we hear words like this from God's word, we should be strengthened. We should be emboldened to do his will. And that doesn't have to be something that's seemingly extraordinary. Every single day we get in our cars and we drive places. But do we really know if we're going to get where we're going? Can we be promised tomorrow? Who do we place our trust in? Or do we just go about life as if everything should be taken for granted? Or should we trust in God with everything? That we would trust in him that when we get in our cars, when we travel somewhere, when we engage in something in daily life, we will be sustained, not just because the odds are in our favor, but because God himself is watching after us, that he promises to take care of us. And even so, if something seemingly bad were to happen to us, like our lives are taken in some accident or horrible tragic event, that that seems good to him and it shall be good with us. That in all this, we trust God because his promise is sure. And like Abraham, we know this to be true because of what he has done. Because of stories like this, true stories about God and his people, that in this there is rich pictures of what will take place in Christ. That God asks, that God asks that Abraham take his son, his only son, notice how he says that, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him there as a burnt offering. That in this you should hear John 1, or John 3.16, really. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, should, that, whoever, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but shall have eternal life. That in the one and only son of God, he has been offered up for you. That in this place where Isaac was offered as a sacrifice, on that hill, the very Son of God was offered. In that land was next to the city of Jerusalem, or Salem at that time, or Jebus, depending on which time it was. But on that hill, in the same place that God spared the only son of Abraham, God spares us, 
and he gives his only son as a sacrifice. And we see this in the ram that is caught in the thicket by his horns. That the crown of thorns is even shown here in the sacrifice that is to be given up for the child of promise. That all these things foreshadow that God will provide what he promises to give. That in all these things, his word is trustworthy and true. That for us to hold on to his promises is not a bad thing. It's not a foolish thing. The world may look at us and say, what a bunch of fools that gather around to hear a word about a man they think died and rose from the dead. What a bunch of fools to pray to a God that doesn't exist, right? Quote, unquote. What a bunch of fools to trust in a book that was written how many thousands of years ago? But we are not fools. We who trust in God's word are not fools, but we are granted God's wisdom and his insight that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the, the knowledge of the Holy One is the insight that will save you, that God provides all of this free of charge and for you because he loves you. And he does not desire you to perish, but he wants you to know that his promises are sure and trustworthy so that you can say truly on the mount of, of the Lord, he has provided that sacrifice for me. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.